0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Ideas Center at the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Chris Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment. For this episode, we're using a slightly different format. We'll hear from several leading figures who are at the forefront of the battle against disinformation, a challenge that's taken a whole new dimension during the global pandemic. COVID-19 has dominated the headlines over the past year. Policymakers and public health officials around the world have been pressed to respond to their citizens' questions and concerns about the disease and the development of vaccines. Medical-related mis- and disinformation during this global emergency have complicated efforts, both to inform citizens and protect public health. At the same time, authoritarian governments have seized upon the crisis as an opportunity to exert influence by undertaking disinformation activities to manipulate perceptions about responses to the global pandemic. This episode of the Power 3.0 podcast features three interviews conducted by my colleague Dean Jackson, a program officer at NEDS International Forum, with experts who focus on the challenges that disinformation poses to the integrity of the information space. Each of these guests contributed essays to a special publication called Global Insights on COVID-19 and the Information Space that the International Forum published earlier this year. For our first segment, Dean spoke with Vladimir Ravinsky, an associate professor of political science and director of the Interdisciplinary Research Center at Isei University in Colombia, about how authoritarian disinformation around COVID-19 is affecting Latin America.
1: Vladimir, you've written about the decline of international affairs coverage in Latin American news media. What are the leading sources of coverage across the region, and why are they shifting resources from this
2: crucial area?
1: How are authoritarian media filling this coverage gap?
2: Well, to begin with, the Latin American information space is very diverse, and there are many providers of news, opinions, and other types of the media coverage in this part of the world. At the same time, even the leading media have been focusing most of their attention on the local news and local developments. And as a result, people in Latin America are less aware of the international scenarios and above all, they are not aware of the nature of some political regimes, like the ones in Russia or China. And that is why Russia, China, but also Iran and some other are presenting themselves as the credible alternative sources of information, even though they have a clear political agenda and everything that they do in Latin American information space. For example, when they report on the COVID-19 pandemic, they say that because the political regimes in China and Russia are not democracy, supposedly they are better fit to deal with the problem. At the same time, they criticize the democratic governments for not being able to offer a solution to the problem precisely because they are democracy. In addition, today, millions of Latin Americans have easy access to high-speed Internet, and they receive information not from the traditional TV channels and newspapers, but from the websites, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and similar sources. And it seems that many of the traditional respected Latin American information providers have been somewhat slow in moving into the virtual space, and it is there where the authoritarian media have built a noticeable presence. It is important to take into account that the government-controlled media from Russia and China have a crucial comparative advantage if we compare them with independent media from Latin America and from outside of the region. They have huge guaranteed budgets that are given to them by their governments. The independent media, however, have to struggle in order to obtain resources, either from subscriber or from advertising, to be able to continue their work. And this places certain limitation on what they do.
1: It seems to me we've entered a new phase of the pandemic. It's still quite deadly, but the distribution of multiple vaccines has put the end in sight. Among these vaccines are options developed in Russia and China. How has this development changed the dynamics that you just described?
2: Well, the topic of vaccination is certainly central to Latin America and the Caribbean today. And people demand rapid and effective solution from their governments. Both Russia and China understand this. And they do take a full advantage of making the issue of vaccine a political issue. For example, in the case of Russia, Moscow want to spread the message that it is worth of having Russians as friends. They say that friends will get the Russian vaccine first, and they have delivered the vaccine to Venezuela and Argentina. And this delivery received extensive coverage by RT and Sputnik. At the same time, the Russian media in Spanish run an effective disinformation campaign saying that Moscow is ready to offer the vaccine to any country in Latin America. But some governments do not want to accept the offer simply because they do not like Russia. In fact, the key reason of why some Latin American governments are careful when it comes to the Russian vaccine is the fact that Russia does not follow the internationally recognized rule of testing and certification. Yet a big part of Latin American audience simply do not know about this. China is using a different strategy. They say that they can make a better offer and sell the vaccine that costs less than the ones produced in the United States, the UK, or Europe. But Latin American governments do not want to make the deals with China because of the political pressure by the United States. Once again, not all Latin Americans are fully aware of the issues linked to the questions of safety and effectiveness of vaccines made in China. And the Chinese government-controlled media take a full advantage of this lack of knowledge. In other words, there is no doubt that the authoritarian media that operate in Latin America treat the topic of the COVID-19 vaccine as a political issue and use it to basically criticize the democratic regimes in the region.
1: So it's a continuation of the earlier strategy with an added wrinkle.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: Looking forward, what unanswered questions about the impact of authoritarian disinformation could researchers tackle with increased resources?
2: I think first, we have to understand better the changes that are taking place in the Latin American information space. In recent years, I have been interviewing many journalists and information providers here, and most of them were telling me that the Latin American mass media is paying less attention to international developments because apparently Latin Americans are not interested in news from abroad. I think this is a mistake and the key reason of why foreign media like Arte and Sputnik were able to become an alternative source of information here. And in this context, I consider that one of the problems we as researchers have is the lack of precise data on demands and expectations by Latin American public opinion. In addition, we have to make sure that Latin American public is better aware of the true agenda that is pursued by the authoritarian media of Russia, China, and Iran, and do not accept at face value everything that they hear from them. And I'm sure that we have a plentiful eyes to do so, the independent media from the region itself, the trusted media based in democratic countries, but also non-government organizations and think tanks. United, we can surely win this battle for the minds of Latin Americans.
0: Latin America is just one example of a region where disinformation is making it more difficult to get accurate, reliable information to the public in an ongoing emergency situation. To understand how researchers can shed light on this problem in order to help civil society and public officials respond, Dean spoke with Renee Resta, the research manager at the Stanford Internet Observatory.
1: Renee, I've heard you describe the lack of access to social media data as an overarching limitation on our understanding of disinformation. In your writing, you've specifically cited the lack of data that goes beyond user engagement with specific pieces of content. I was wondering if you could give me some examples of what we might learn if we had broader data access. Tell us a little bit about your proposal for what some might call a multi-stakeholder system for getting different sectors to share information and work together on this problem.
3: So I think one of the key challenges is identifying what the problem that we're interested in solving is. So there is indication that social media group dynamics are creating echo chambers, that they are perhaps leading to radicalization of certain, certain parts of the population. There's concern about information operations from state actors. While that is not as much of an issue in the U.S. in the 2020 election, that is still very much an issue for many parts of the world in which state actors continue to try to influence either their own citizens domestically or outside of their borders, other countries. So there's the information operations challenge. There are issues with right now the global pandemic and how social media networked activism is being used to do things like, you know, shut down vaccination sites. Um, Groups that found each other on Facebook and coordinated on Facebook don't stay on Facebook. These things have demonstrable real-world impact at this point, but we don't have a very good understanding of the mechanisms and the dynamics by which those forces are being shaped. So what I mean by that is, we can see things like engagement. If we use the vaccine conversation as an example, we can see that much of the content related to the COVID vaccine that is getting a significant amount of engagement is coming from anti-vaccine echo chambers. But at the same time, if most of the engagement stays within the echo chamber, it's people who are just kind of continuing to propagate the same messages amongst their own community that they've had for years and years and years now. So what we want to try to understand a little bit more is, do these messages make their way out of the community? Are they having an influence on the broader public Uh, in the context of radicalization? Do people who are served up suggestions for Facebook groups and then subsequently join those groups, is that a behavior that they would have done on their own? Or is there something to be said for the way in which these nudges are directing people into particular communities? When we talk about state-sponsored information operations, and again, we say, you know, Russia ran this operation targeting people in this country in Africa, um, we can see the engagements on it. But we don't know, again, to what extent that changed hearts or minds, led to a different voting decision. So there's a lot of unknowns there where the engagement data itself doesn't communicate the full truth of the matter. And so that, I think, is, is one of the key challenges that we face as we try to understand how much this is having an impact, what impact it's having on what communities it's having the greatest impact. And that, I think, is really a function of this tension between access to data and protecting user privacy. When we think about that conundrum, right, the uh, nobody wants personal data around this person saw this post and then took this action, you know, that's uh, something we do believe that that should be protected under some sort of privacy, but at the same time. Without some visibility into those trends uh, in aggregate, it's hard for us to understand the dynamics in play. And so this is one of the trade-offs that I think we're beginning to confront now as we think about which of these problems require additional research efforts and how might we research them while still protecting user privacy.
1: Reacting to the beginning of your answer, attribution and impact seem to me to still be two of the hardest types of questions to answer with the data available. I think you're absolutely right about breaking this down into discrete parts of a much bigger problem. I also think it's critical to see the type of research you've described as the basis for other types of responses. One area that you highlight is improving the communications capability of public interest actors and scientific authorities. In many ways, they're just outcompeted by bad actors in today's information environment. What are some ways civil society can help improve this imbalance?
3: So I think one of the challenges for civil society is they are adept at understanding either their community or their issue. They have deep, deep domain knowledge. That doesn't always translate to communications expertise, Meaning they need to use what are basically, honestly, internet marketing techniques, uh, you know, creating content and pushing it through networks and influencers to achieve a degree of virality and awareness to shape people's perception on an issue. That process of shaping public opinion in the era of mass participatory communications online, I think, is something that civil society organizations and institutions and public health officials really don't have that innate capability at this point, and, and why should they, right? That is not their core competency. And so the question for us becomes, at the same time, when the old mechanism of communicating with the public, putting out a press release, doing a press conference, getting covered by mainstream media is no longer sufficient for competing in the, I hate to even say marketplace of ideas, but <laughs> the roiling public square, the kind of like place where these conversations are happening now. Where what gets attention is what gets the most engagement in a hashtag or gets amplified by the right person at the right time, not participating in those conversations means seeding share of voice or seeding or having a voice in the conversation at all, in fact, to other people who are better at using the tactics necessary to communicate today. I think one of the things we've seen with COVID in particular is people expecting updates, you know, verified, reputable, scientific updates on things like cures or treatments. Meanwhile, the uh, institutions and the public health authorities are operating on a different timescale, and they're saying, we don't know the answer to this yet. But rather than being transparent in that communication and giving the public something to fill the void, what instead happens is what fills the void is whatever the person most incentivized to create content wants the public to see. And so that phenomenon where people are searching and what they're searching... search engines they're searching on social platforms and what's being returned is content that's being created by people who may not be the most reputable, may not have the best knowledge, may have another incentive entirely. But when the platforms are trying to surface information, that's really what they have at their disposal. Even if they choose to point to something like the CDC or World Health Organization's website, if the content isn't compelling, people aren't going to pick it up and share it. And so since so much of how we collectively engage in sense making as a society today is this participatory dynamic of people seeing something and sharing it, seeing something, adding their own information. Reflection to it, maybe, and retweeting it, not having civil society and institutions actively participating in that conversation means that a lot of those reputable voices, a lot of the people who have the most expertise or knowledge, are much harder to find compared to people who understand how to use internet marketing techniques the best.
1: I think it's a fundamental point that the information landscape has moved away from tightly scripted messages in broadcast or print media, and that people expect, as you say, more transparency in the process and more of an open dialogue. Without that, rumors flourish. In Washington, many conversations about social media platforms and disinformation tend to focus on the United States and Europe, but most of the world's internet users live in places that are often mentioned in these conversations as an afterthought, if at all. How can the improvements in data sharing and public communications you've just described be expanded globally?
3: That's a great question. One of the things that has come up a couple of times is the extent to which Facebook put remarkable amount of resources behind the U.S. 2020 election because it was such a high-stakes race. One of the questions has been, to what extent are we able to prioritize the elections of other countries around the world? So at Stanford Internet Observatory, we have actually tried, with the exception of the 2020 election, to focus quite a bit on how these problems are manifesting outside of the U.S. So we studied the Polish election. Uh, we have some excellent scholars doing a lot of work on Libya, looking at Hong Kong. So trying to understand the manifestation of particularly state influence, but also what we call full spectrum propaganda. So broadcast and social media in both an overt and a covert spectrum, looking at ways in which other countries and other populations are being targeted even outside of the US. So I think scholars dedicating time and resources to looking at how the problem manifests outside of the US is critically important. It also provides really interesting views into how policies designed for some of the threat models that we have for interference in politics in the US actually don't really apply to quite the same extent to other parts of the world. So I think the combination of building this research community and laying down those relationships between scholars where people who have deep regional expertise or are actually in the region, are connecting with researchers who have the ability to do some of these investigations and also, more importantly, to teach some of these methods to folks who are more directly impacted outside of the U.S. is really a a critical part of thinking about this problem going forward. I think Facebook's oversight board has tried to build something of this, you know, people coming from different perspectives from various parts of the world, particularly in the context of how content moderation is processed and impacts communities' outside of the U.S. as well, I think that's a step in, in recognizing that this is a significant challenge and that really building these bridges between civil society and researchers going forward is the best way to address that.
0: Rene Resta makes a strong case that researchers can enhance their efforts through durable partnerships with practitioners in civil society and other sectors. For our final segment, Dean spoke with Will Moy, founder of the U.K.-based fact-checker Full Fact to discuss lessons that can be drawn from fact-checking initiatives and applied towards developing communication strategies to better compete against false and misleading information.
1: Well, I wanted to ask you a question about preparedness. You've written that fact-checkers need to take lessons in preparedness from emergency management experts. Have the early experiences of the pandemic translated into more preparedness for the ongoing vaccination effort? And how are fact-checkers prepared and what could they have done better?
4: I think they have translated into a better approach to the vaccine rollout, partly because it was such a predictable problem. We knew six, nine months ago that there would one day be a vaccine and we knew that there would be misinformation and disinformation about that vaccine. We also knew exactly who we needed to be working with in order to respond to that. So governments had to deal with it. This thing is happening at countrywide scale. The mainstream media had to deal with it. But we also needed the health experts, the vaccine experts, to be ready to communicate. So it was possible to have a shared identification of the problem. And it was possible to have a shared identification of who needs to collaborate and what kind of response could be effective. And of course there are people with huge experience of dealing with vaccine rollouts and the misinformation around them. I think that stands in contrast to our preparedness for emergencies generally. Let's say that tomorrow a food safety problem happened in my country or your country. And suddenly you need a different set of relationships. You have a different understanding of what the problems are, and you don't have that joined up approach. I think that's what we need to get better at. And that's something that I think in emergency management, in other fields, we see a shared way of identifying a problem of who needs to be involved, different roles in the response and working together for that response. Counter misinformation is a relatively immature field, and we don't have some of those shared approaches yet.
1: I think the distinction between a foreseeable crisis and a sudden crisis is an important one. And as you say, it's important to have processes in place for things that are less predictable. I've often been interested in another point you raise, which is that audience research can be a way of understanding the spread of misinformation and their impact. When you call for fact checkers and independent media to take what you call a market research outlook, how do you see that changing their approach? What questions do they need to answer?
4: It's a great question because of course, part of the point of research is you can't know what you will learn from it. But if you think about the classic four P's of marketing, product, price, promotion, and place, we have as fact checkers, a product fact checks, and we need to understand who they are useful for and when they are useful. We know they are useful in lots of circumstances, but we need to understand when they are good. And we need to understand what other products might help people be informed and make the choices they want to make. We need to understand how they're promoted. Um, We need to understand what kind of way of packaging them, what kind of language, what kind of formats are effective for people. And we need to understand where they need to appear to be useful for people. Um, Obviously, fact checks are free. Not they cost a huge amount to produce, but they're free. They're there for everybody. But those those three Ps, the product, the promotion, and the placement, are crucial to how we get good information to people and how people use them. There's a recognition that fact-checking is necessary because it's an accountability function. It's looking at people in positions of power and responsibility and holding them to account for what they say. That's important in and of itself, regardless of the size of the audience or or who it's reaching. But fact-checking is an information function. Fact-checking that's there to empower people and help people make their own minds up needs to really understand the people it's there to serve we need to talk to them. We need to learn from them. We need to know what they care about, what they're looking at and listening to and interested in, and we need to meet them where they are. And the only way you can do that is good audience research.
1: Thanks. That's really thoughtful. And I appreciate the systematic lens that you bring to what marketing can do for fields that aren't about commercial products. The final question I wanted to ask you was about some of the ways fact checkers are scaling up their work in the face of a deluge of misleading content. What new approaches to scale do you think are most promising?
4: I think this is just an opportunity to say how much I love the international fact checking community and how many inspiring, thoughtful, smart, energetic people are working every day to find new ways to help good information, help people. And all around the world, we're seeing different approaches to that and every day there's a new innovation happening. And it's it's really impressive, and it's one of the things that makes working in this space rewarding when there is so much awful stuff happening. I think the most promising areas are, how do you give more power to people? Um, Malvita have done great work in Spain on that in trying to get people with their own expertise taking part and contributing their expertise. It's a really hard thing to do Attempts at crowdsourced fact checking have failed for lots of good reasons consistently. One of them being that speed is of the essence, um, one of them being that lots of people with expertise also have agendas. But Maldita is bringing in what they call superheroes into their fact checking process. So, getting more people involved and empowering them. you know, And we've seen that in the pandemic, of course. We've seen doctors and nurses, vaccine experts, and research scientists come out and explain things from their point of view direct to the public. And that's one of the great benefits of the leveling effect of the internet. So that's an important area. Let's go to the other extreme, give it to the machines, let the uh, robots look after us. The reality of this is that it is so bad at the moment, it is just so bad. We had an example where a major internet company blocked a post from a police force in the UK warning against coronavirus scams. And the best explanation their non-technical staff were able to give us of why they'd done this was the word coronavirus and scam were in the same post. And the computers were really that stupid. Um, The technology to understand the nuances of human language at internet scale is so far off. What we have to remember is, despite those ridiculous examples, there are real opportunities here. And what we're finding is the, the real spaces where the tech is going to make a big difference is in speeding things up and cutting through the sheer volume of stuff to let us focus in the areas where the humans can do, if you like, the last lap of that relay race.
0: That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on the topics we discussed today, we recommend the International Forum's Global Insights essay collection, COVID-19 and the Information Space, boosting the response. For further analysis on the themes we discussed today and will be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us using the handle at Think Democracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.net.org/ ideas. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, including Dean Jackson for conducting the interviews producer Jessica Ludwig, and our editing and sound engineer, Rochelle Faust. I'm Chris Walker, and we hope you enjoyed this discussion on containing COVID-19 disinformation and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts.